Hey everybody, welcome to The Lab. This is 538's NBA podcast for the week of March 21st, 2018. I'm Neil Payne. I write about sports for 538. I will be your host today and I'm joined as usual by my co-podcasters this time. Another treat, both are in studio. First up, we've got fellow 538 sports writer Kyle Wagner. Hey Kyle. Hey guys. And uh, also Chris Herring. Uh, he, he got in just before the blizzard here in New York. What's going on, man? Hey, uh, thanks to you both for braving what seems like a weekly Wednesday blizzard here in New York City, which happens to be the same day that we tape our podcast. So all of us have to have to be in studio on these days while uh, some of our coworkers can work from home. But it's all good. On today's show, uh, we're going to discuss, first up, the still-hot Utah Jazz. Uh, even though they lost on Tuesday, they have been winning a vast majority of their games recently. We'll talk about why that's happening and what it means for a team in a market like Utah. We've also got a significant digit on the Oklahoma City Thunder and their late game collapse on Tuesday. Uh, The number on this sort of has to be heard to be believed. But first, let's talk about the Houston Rockets. Finally, as promised, I think a couple podcasts ago, we said we would uh, dive into Houston. They were the winners of a highly entertaining duel against the Portland Trailblazers on Tuesday night. In that game, James Harden poured in 42 points, helping Houston hold off the streaking Blazers and secure for the Rockets a 30th win in their last 33 games. There's a lot to unpack from that game, but first up, I wanted to throw out there this idea that I saw some people talking about uh, in the wake of that game, which is basically this was sort of the statement game, or a statement game for Harden on his MVP candidacy, and I kind of feel like he may not have needed that. I mean, he's kind of had this this MVP thing sealed up for a long time, but maybe this was like the the icing on the MVP cake for him this season with the game that he had against Dame Lillard and uh, CJ McCollum. Yeah, absolutely. And it was it was a signature game with the signature shot where he's been hitting these step back threes at just I was about to say Steph Curry rates, but better than better. Steph Curry because uh, Steph takes fewer of them now, but also. Uh, Harden is just making them at like 38-39% um, and just taking so many and taking them in a way that Steph didn't where Steph was relying on you know his quick release and you know getting around uh, getting around screens just getting it up really fast Harden is turning it into hero ball he is uh, backing guys down he's just like staring down defenders taking three steps in he's if you look at the one that he put up over Nurkic last night he was at the free throw line before he started to step back and it's this really fun way that he's doing it that is just like not just effective. It's like it's his signature now. It, you know, when I think about what Harden's doing, I and I, I'm weird about this, and I, I was even talking to my girlfriend about this pretty recently. I don't set up auto pay for any of my accounts for anything that I owe money for, uh, phone bill, anything, because I always am like, you know, if the world ends tomorrow. And I don't have to pay that bill. I will have spent an extra like $80 that I didn't have to. And people treat James Harden the same way with the MVP race. We're like, well, what if this guy gets hot? So Anthony Davis gets ridiculous. LeBron gets this ridiculous streak where they, you know, they have newfound life after they make a trade. And people kind of invoke these guys later in the discussion, guys that have had great seasons. But Harden's been consistent when he's been healthy enough to play. I, I mean, I've, I was just thinking about it as we were talking about this question. He had a 60-point triple-double earlier in the season. Uh, the Rockets have the best record in the league. Like, at some point, when do we just say enough? I mean, he hasn't won an MVP, but when you look at the numbers he's put up, he could have won. 
Um, I mean, Steph, had it not been for historic seasons by other people, he could have won once or twice already anyway, and that was without the Rockets having the best record. Now they do, and now they're probably kind of going to run away with that, given all the guys that the Warriors have out. I, I just don't even understand at this point how we're realistically kind of even invoking other people in the conversation. He shouldn't have needed a game last night to really have this award locked up. Well, what I think he really needed, though, was like the brand change, because for years... He was James Harden, annoying guy who gets fouled a lot in ways that like sure. aren't too fun to watch. And like he was playing with Dwight Howard, which didn't help uh, for a while on that sure. either. Which, by the way, he still is drawing an immense number of fouls. We we kind of followed up on your piece from last year, Chris, in a video on the site where we found that he had uh, sixty uh, uh, fifty nine uh, three point fouls drawn during the season, which is more than every other team in the league except Brooklyn. And he's also leading the league in free throw attempts for a fourth straight year. So that's still there even though the refs have tried to kind of crack down on it a little bit oh absolutely and he's also still doing these fun things he was still like throwing i think chris wrote the story last season or the season before about how he throws such long passes because like james harden passing angles are unlike pretty much anyone else's passing angles and like those are fun to watch when he's got it going like the ones he gets to capella from like 30 feet away on like a on a dive or when he's just uh dives in and just gets it out to his shooters he was already doing that he was already taking all these shots he was kind of bricking all the the pull-ups that he was taking and was shooting a pretty bad percentage from three for a while uh but this season he came in and he'd done a lot of work in the off season and everything that kind of looked like oh well this is a player who is uh only uh succeeding because he draws all these fouls and these other parts of his game are you know not as sharp where he's he's playing better defense this season where he, in the past he was you know really really bad as as we know where in the past he was shooting that like kind of mediocre three point percentage and like it was kind of buoyed by you know all the free throws this season that's not really the case this season it's like the total package and even though in those past seasons he pro- could have and probably should have won uh, one or two of those uh, there's not that sense of an incomplete player there. He's he's the full thing right now. I mean, this is a situation where last night I'm watching that game against Portland and I'm saying to myself, at what point does Portland start to put more people, you know, I was almost thinking about like football, like in the box where you make sure that he can't get to the basket and then you look at what the Rockets are shooting as a team from three. They're nine of 17. Harden is getting point after point after point in the paint. And so, I mean, that, that kind of crystallized exactly why he's so difficult to guard. You really can't do anything. You can't put three people there at the basket because if you do that, you're, you're taking one or two guys away from the three-point arc where guys are going to get open shots if you try to guard Harden more closely. And so he's unguardable. The team plays defense. Harden, I mean, uh, Ben Alomar put out a piece pretty recently about Harden not being nearly as bad on defense as he's thought to be. He is part of a top 10 defense this year, and I mean, I, I think he has been improved on that side of the floor. There's really no argument anymore for not giving him the award, and I, I don't, you know, if, if, if we're just kind of looking for someone to give it to, I guess you could do that, but even with that, most of these other guys have been hurt. Most of these other guys have had real ups and downs to their seasons. The Rockets have been the most consistent team in the league. Okay, so maybe the more interesting question is, has Harden sort of usurped LeBron or or Steph as the best player in the league, kind of full capital letters on that yet uh, with the season that he's had this year and some of the injuries or, in, in the case of LeBron, just the team underperformance that, that he's had in Cleveland, despite great numbers as we've covered? 
man. Yeah, I'm <laughs> not a man. Yeah. Uh-huh. Me and looked at each other like, I don't uh, know. And man. I didn't even mention Kevin Durant. So, uh, yeah, it's kind of interesting. We, we think of the NBA as being the sport where the MVP goes to the best player uh, more often than in other sports, at least. There's this idea of like fluke seasons where a guy... Uh, plays like the best but may, maybe isn't the most talented player are less common uh but yeah it's a, it's a tough question to answer because uh for instance if you look at uh real plus minus Chris Paul has actually passed James Harden in that stat uh you know just among the the leaders in the league but also the leaders on the Houston Rockets so i i think uh, you know it's a blessing to be in an era where we have so many players who could be considered the best but it is an interesting question whenever there's a disparity between the best player and the most valuable player. That, that's why I'm I a little hesitant to say that he's really jumped anybody in that top two, three conversation, mainly because I think if you plugged most of those two or three guys into that spot with that team, with that unusual sort of style, that they might be able to do the same thing or something close to it. Um, and I think Chris Paul, like you just said, is even kind of on that list where they're both really dominant players in that system uh, I think they help each other to be dominant because they're normally on the floor together. But I, I don't know, you know, like I, that's the, that's where I do start to take into account the idea of what is Harden's defense like, um, you know, what's his effort like. Um, I, I think people have more recently kind of dug in on Kevin Durant and his defense from the beginning of the season when he was kind of being talked about as a defensive player of the year candidate. Uh, I don't. I don't think he's there, and uh, you know Kevin Durant isn't even as good as what we were talking about at the beginning of the season. But you start to think about someone like Kawhi Leonard. If he was healthy, he, he's having a bigger impact on both sides of the floor than James Harden is, mostly through one side of the floor. But he is better than he's given credit for. But when you start talking about a top two or three player, I mean, he has moments where he certainly looks that way. But I think it's context dependent, and I think his offense uh, and the offense that he plays in with the coach that he plays for kind of um, illuminates that issue a little bit more. Right. And another way to put that is like uh, best player at what? Uh, to where James Harden is playing a very specific role for this team. Um, it's a role that is you know built specifically around his talents. It's not the same thing as being able to take a roster uh, like the roster LeBron is taking and the the responsibilities that he has on that team uh, to you know the conference finals or finals or something else. And so uh, I'm not sure James Harden is a guy who is going to take a team that has limited talent around him, um, you know, far in the playoffs the way the, you know, some other players might. But uh, given the right the right roster, the right whatever, uh, yeah, he's as valuable as anyone else. Okay, so let's just zoom out a little bit and talk about the overall picture of the potential championship race. Uh, a reader on Twitter pointed out the other day that our Carmelo model, uh, the 538 model that projects the rest of the season, uh, only gives the Golden State Warriors an 11% chance of winning the NBA title right now, even after we make all of these new adjustments that we added in for playoff experience. And for comparison's sake, the Rockets are at 55% right now. Uh, so how skeptical should we be about that number? Uh, just for a comparison's sake, I looked at the numbers at VegasInsider.com, and they have an implied probability for the Warriors of 46% and then the Rockets are at 29%, and then you have the Cavs at 6%, the Raptors at 6%, and the Celtics at 4%. So it's a little bit different, uh, and it seems like we go through this every year where we're kind of having to explain why does the model have something different than maybe the conventional wisdom? Who's right? Will a team like Cleveland, and now maybe ask it of the Warriors, they're they're injured, so they have guys coming back, but this question of will they play to a higher level in, in the postseason, and how do we account for that? Well, I think public perception always kind of trails what the numbers are showing you, first of all. 
Uh, I remember having to argue with my friend basically to the death about, you know, back going back to what year was that, 2013-14 or was it 14-15? The first year the Warriors won their title. Um, right, 14-15. And I, I told him very early on, you know, probably maybe two-thirds of the way through the season – the Warriors are probably going to win the title this year. Their their net rating was ridiculous. They were really good on both sides of the ball. They obviously had an offense that looked kind of unguardable as far as what Steph was doing that season, stuff we'd really never seen. And so, I mean, there are indicators there, kind of net rating being one of the biggest ones, that if you get over a certain threshold and you're this much better than everybody else, you almost always win a title. I think at that point it was something like six of the seven teams that had ever had a net rating better than 10 had won a title and that – uh, Golden State was the seventh team. And so I, I said, you know, there are a lot of things lining up here that really suggest this. Um, the challenge here, and I think probably one of the, the most fair critiques of our model, uh, people have asked us this on Twitter, Do does the system take into account, does it know that Kevin Durant's injured? Does it know Steph is injured? No. And so I think that's a big part of it is that if obviously the Warriors are losing some games in part because nobody's playing for them right now. Uh, and it, it's also creating this kind of controversy that a lot of fans think that they could be playing and that the Warriors are actually using it as a way to kind of get around, you know, the, the league's rest rules and not wanting to water down the competition. Um, I don't necessarily think that, but obviously if the system doesn't recognize that, then I think that's part of why the, the, their probabilities look so low in comparison to Houston, who has been dominant all season and really hasn't had to deal with too many injuries outside of Chris Paul's. Right. So the the comparison to the fourteen fifteen Warriors is, I think, the big one, where uh, it's a very similar situation. Obviously, Chris Paul coming in is different than that, that team kind of metastasizing all at once. But uh, they were coming from the Mark Jackson team that had them uh, in the top three or whatever for defense for a few seasons, but they were outside the top ten um, in offense. Um, that season, they jumped to second in overall offense um, and first in defense. This season, uh, Houston has not just the best offense in the league, but the best in history by basketball reference, uh, or as long as they've been keeping, you know, offensive rating. And they've jumped from 18th to 10th in defensive Which is rating. huge. Yes. You, you, typically, you need a top 10 defense right. to, to contend for a title. Uh, so the the Warriors jumped from 51 wins to 67. The Rockets last season won 55 games, which is, you know, a middle-of-the-pack team in the playoffs at least. And this season we project them to 67 wins. Wow. And they're not at that 10 uh, net rating mark that uh, that those Warriors were, and that's like the, the drop-dead. They're probably going to win a title mark. And only 12 teams in history have had that, we should say. Right. But they're at 9.2. And so all-time, um, through the first 71 games of the, uh, of the schedule— uh, they are 20th. And the teams that are in front of them include four Michael Jordan teams, three Tim Duncans, two Shaq and Kobe's, two KG Celtics, and you know three versions of these Warriors, uh, the past three. There's still really only like seven or eight teams, really, when you think about it that way, because you've got a bunch of different iterations of the mm-hmm. same team. And on top of that, the teams that don't make the finals, because typically if you're at this level, you at least make the finals, which is a little different this season because the Warriors are in the way. But they're a finals caliber team. And the teams that haven't made it are teams like the 2013 Thunder, who were the top seed and lost Russ in the first round. Or the, the 2012 Bulls, who lost Derrick Rose in the first game of the first round. Or that crazy Spurs team that won 67 games and was going to, you know, be a great series and then you know they lose to the Thunder, who took the who took a three one lead on the the Warriors. Uh, the Warriors. Yeah, yeah. Right. So, so these are all like of uh, the caliber of team that you're talking for a team like the Rockets that has been doing it this well all season. 
it's not a question of like if they are you know if they're real or whatever else it's a question of are they going to win the title because pro like the metrics say history says because usually they do they look like a team that should and and i mean that's that's the weirdest thing to me and again this is what i was just getting at with the public perception the only argument that i'm hearing against the warriors or i'm sorry against the rockets right now is that harden hasn't proven it in the playoffs Chris Paul hasn't proven it. That's not a good rationale right now because we've never seen them play on the same team. And they've been the best team in the league all year. I mean, what are they at this point? What are they at now? Three games that they've lost with Capella, Paul, and, and Harden in the lineup together? Or is it two? But I mean, when they've been at full strength, basically nobody beats them. And so we're, we're at a stage now where you really don't have that many valid critiques of what could really hurt them in the playoffs. Yeah, barring uh, a team like the Blazers who have kind of inserted themselves into this race, uh, I think we're all just have that Western Conference Finals matchup between the Rockets and War- uh, Warriors probably circled and underlined. And I can't wait. It, it would be the finals if uh, Adam Silver gets his way and, and reseeds the playoffs probably <laughs> down the line, but this time we'll have to settle for it in the Western Conference Finals. Okay, so let's leave the top of the West there and uh, we'll move on to a team that's a little bit lower in the Western Conference standings but they're moving up uh, or at least were before they lost on Tuesday night that's the Utah Jazz Uh, remember a few weeks ago we were talking about the ultra crowded Western Conference playoff race and we mentioned that the Jazz hadn't really been able to move up out of 10th place despite winning some absurd number of games uh, in in a row or or just a couple losses in in a dozen wins Uh, well the Jazz have kept that momentum going they're up to 21 wins in their last 24 games and that's even after being upset Tuesday by my former team, the Lowly Hawks, who can't really even tank right. Uh, so now the Jazz are up to the eighth seed in the West. So they're in playoff position, and they're in sixth before that loss on Tuesday. Guys, what has been driving the recent tear that the Jazz are on? Well, when I, I look at them, I mean, the, the big thing is, is defense. Uh, they, they were already a good defensive team. But Rudy Gobert being there, being healthy, kind of, I mean, first of all, he, he probably should get defensive player of the year. I've seen some smart arguments as to why we should rethink that maybe not take the award away from him but you know the the fact that uh some of the teams that he's playing against that he's the games he's been healthy for have been against lower caliber offenses but i mean he's been such a big difference maker at the rim obviously it's a season where uh Kawhi Leonard has not been healthy so that's one of the people that would normally compete with him for this award Draymond uh, has had a little bit of a down year, even though he's still been pretty good on defense. Robertson is out. For Robertson City. missed time. Paul George, uh, you know, has had kind of an up and down season at times, despite how impactful he's been. Uh, so, I mean, I think the award probably should be his, but he's been a big, big part of it. And I, I think, you know, looking at uh, defensive efficiency since the All Star break, Utah is so far ahead of everybody else defensively. I think the gap between. Um, you know, one and two in the rankings is something like the same as between two and 11 or two and 13 or something insane. Um, so, I mean, that's driven it more than anything, but their offense has been a lot better. And I know Kyle is working on something kind of about that. Right. So, I mean, the big, the big thing is how good Donovan Mitchell has been and he's given them uh, a player who can, you know, just take on offense on his own, except for last night in the game to the Hawks where uh, Mitchell kind of struggled a lot. Um, but overall, uh, he gives them a player who uh, they don't need the system to be clicking like on all cylinders at all times. And um, also Derek Favors is having a really nice season also. Under the radar. Right. And like kind of the best season of his career. Uh, but aside from that, aside, aside from Mitchell, who's, you know, obvious and we've uh, talked about a little bit in the past and, you know, everyone's uh, been looking at. Uh, Ricky Rubio is having a really 
if not nice season, a very different season than he's had. And it's it's clearly the most successful season that he's played as a pro. And um, in, with really weird effects where his assist rate, uh, assist percentage, which is, you know, the number of field goals he assists um, for his teammates while he's on the floor, is way down. His usage rate is way up and his shooting isn't necessarily all that much better. He's in the low 30s for uh, threes. He still can't really, you know, make as many of his layups as you want. And early in the season, this was a problem because he was their leading scorer for a little bit. Uh, he was he was taking way more shots than he always had. But he's still doing that and still shooting at like just a kind of so-so percentage. Uh, but the team's much more effective. And what that is, is um, just going in and looking at it, he's passing to specific kinds of players. So Joe Ingles, when uh, he passes Joe Ingles, Joe Ingles becomes uh, Kyle Korver, essentially. And Joe Ingles is already a very good player. Uh, but the kind of role he's playing in this system, it's kind of like a traditional uh, passing wing, where last season they had Boris Yaw. And if you look at Boris's passing numbers and who he was passing to and who he's doing well with, it was Joe Ingles, it was Rudy Gobert, and it was George Hill, who was on the team at the time. And it, Rubio is kind of playing that same facilitator role. And that's what's allowing like Mitchell to to kind of exist as he is. Because if you look at when Rubio passes to Mitchell, uh, the numbers are actually really bad. But what those possessions are, those aren't like, you know, a traditional like point guard setting up Mitchell. It's he passes to Mitchell and Mitchell kind of dribbles the ball out and he turns it into an ISO. Yeah. Yeah. That's the that's the difference. And that's kind of what makes Mitchell so different than Hayward. And we've talked about this a lot. Um, Hayward was immensely popular there in Utah for all sorts of reasons that. Uh, some that I think go outside of basketball, but I I really think diplomatically that, put, yeah, I, I could go there. I won't go there about Salt Lake City. Big League Utah. of Legends community out in yeah, Salt Lake City. Yeah, I, I won't I won't get into that. But uh, Hayward, for as good as he, I think Hayward is solid. He's good at everything. I don't know that he's really great at anything. I, I think Mitchell has the potential to surpass him in some ways. Um, one of the things that Hayward was not great at was really constantly creating his own offense. It, it still stands out to me so vividly that that Clippers series where Hayward wasn't the guy in clutch time taking those shots. It was actually Joe Johnson. Um, and the fact that Hayward, you know, because he's good moving uh, without the ball and he's good at kind of uh, taking handoffs and stuff like that, that um, that offense was really kind of tailored to him in some ways. It's an offense that moves the ball, like you said, with Diaw really well. They, they've led the league in ball reversals for the last five years. They play that Spurs brand of basketball, which is why Diaw fits so well, which is why Ingles plays as well as he does and basically has been leading the league in three-point percentage for the majority of the year. Um, but Donovan Mitchell doesn't have to play that way. He can get his own shot. He can dance and, and kind of find lanes. We saw the, the Michael Jordan-esque move that he did the other day where he went up with one hand for a layup and then reversed the ball to his left hand and kind of the scoop shot. Uh, that's stuff that Hayward, I guess, every now and then could do, but that wasn't his game. Mitchell, that may be his game on top of the fact that he can exist within this offense without totally disrupting it. Um, it's an offense where, like you said, it's kind of evolving a little bit where Gobert has gone from a guy that needed to be pretty close to the basket to now where he can do a little bit of stuff that helps him kind of look like a playmaker at times uh you know is already a pretty good pick and roll player setting a ton of screens i think more than anybody in the league in terms of uh screens he's setting on the ball but it's it's just an offense that you know even rubio um rubio and ingles both basically lead the league in terms of like dribbling through the lane and, and driving into the paint but then not actually taking a shot so they really probe you 
as an offense, which is a lot different than most teams. They're they're not in a rush. They're always at the bottom of the league in terms of teams that take shots the quickest. They normally take them in the last ten seconds, eight seconds, and they're content doing that because they're they feel like they can find a good shot if they work long enough to do it. And that's what's that's why Mitchell is so important because if you watch the if you watch a lot of Rubio, like we have the the tool where we can watch all the film. Mm-hmm. Um, Rubio does the thing where, um, and if you ask Nate for the long promised, um, you know, player rating system, uh, player who dribbles down the ball and late into the shot clock is actually not that useful, even if he's getting a lot of assists, because just by the nature of the shot, a shot late in the shot clock is worth less. Like They're all the, bailouts. Right. Except, uh, now that they have Donovan Mitchell a lot of times, uh, Rubio will go through the lane, pull it back out, just, uh, go through and he's like, there's no shot for him there. And instead of taking like a wild shot at the rim where, you know, he's rookie, he's not going to make it, uh, he will now throw it out with four seconds left to Donovan and Donovan, uh, just, you know, makes something happen in a way that really Hayward sometimes would, like you said, but like really wouldn't always. Right. And they haven't had a player like that who, not just on plays where just, uh, like the offense goes wrong, but like on plays where the offense is just kind of going and the defense just plays well and they just need some kind of shot at the end. Utah's a team that has played so slowly and, you know, just relied on that offense to just kind of click for so long that, yeah, this is a not just a need, like it's a need that like this specific team had like really largely. Yeah. And speaking of Hayward, I think that this is kind of an interesting case of uh, defying the notion of what happens when a star leaves a small market for a bigger market, because I think we talked about it going into the season about, oh, what are they going to do without Hayward? You know, how are they going to be able to manage? And they've been better this year, as good this year, uh, at least according to the simple rating system, as they were a year ago. And I thought back to a piece that uh, our boss, Nate Silver, wrote about just judging when should you give a player a max deal, because that's what Boston gave uh, Hayward, and presumably Utah was also in on that, uh, and he kind of spurned it. Uh, and this idea that you know only the top 5% of first-round picks in like a given class or a given group of years actually deliver a positive return on the investment of a maximum contract and that really is the dividing line between these pretty good players and the the truly elite players and like you guys were saying Hayward kind of was below that cutoff uh, in the sense that he was a first time all-star just last season uh, he was around 30th in the league in real plus minus each of the past two seasons uh, in his last two seasons in Utah. So I kind of wanted to unpack this idea of when you're a small market team and and you do have to be more budget conscious uh, and, and more conscious of how you're setting up uh, your, your cap space down the line uh, when building a team. Is it better to sort of, when a player like Hayward has developed and reached the point where he is demanding a max contract, to sort of just say, look, we are going to let you get that money somewhere else, but we are going to try to kind of just do our thing and cycle through and, and try to build around what we have without you. Uh, I know you can't predict, you know, Donovan Mitchell was the number 13 right. overall pick. That's not a, traditionally a slot in which you get a player like Donovan Mitchell has turned out to be a potential rookie of the year candidate. Nor can you really even see, like, they heisted Joe Ingles uh, after the Clippers cut him, I think, and they, and they signed him, and he has been one of the most efficient players in the league. So you need good breaks, uh, lucky breaks like that to kind of come together for you. But also it does call into question this idea that when you're a small market and you have a player who's sort of an all-star type and you've developed them, you know, should you do everything that you can uh, to hold on to that player uh, and, and that 
seems to be challenged at least by uh, what's played out in Utah. What I will say again, and, and alluding to it, but not diving all the way. Good luck just letting Gordon Hayward walk without offering him a contract in Utah, <laughs> uh, in a place like Utah. Uh, I mean, it's a place where, frankly, and I, I've said this before that I, what I really do love about that fan base. Um, that I mean, I, I saw a story a couple weeks ago. I tweeted out because I thought it was cool about uh, how they keep selling out of these these really wild jerseys that they have with all the orange in it. Um, I, I think they're decent jerseys. I think they're a little outside of my color palette in terms of what I would wear. <laughs> but they've been selling out because they're they're rare alternate jerseys, and you know, it's specifically the ones that have Donovan Mitchell's name on the back. Um, but it's a fan base that cares a lot, clearly, and it's a fan base that is afraid of the idea of losing their star players. Darren Williams, obviously, before that, it's after an era where they had Carl uh, Malone and John Stockton stay there forever, uh, for the most part. I guess Malone left at the end, but um, you you want to keep these guys there, and it's hard to do that now in an era where you know even as guys have moved to smaller markets in some cases. Um, there's so much attention on the big markets and there's so much attention in certain places that it's hard to, you know, unless Utah were to have a, a run like Oklahoma City did in terms of their draft ability, that they would really draw those sorts of players there. And it's also, if the Jazz can't keep Gordon Hayward, like, who are they going to be able to keep for, you know, the same reasons? Um, but at the same time, uh, just given the rookie scale, uh, yeah, like, you can also if you're relying on drafting uh for you know to replenish your, your stores especially with the shorter nature of nba contracts now like yeah gordon hayward would not be on the books by the time uh you have to pay you have to pay mitchell uh so like yeah like it's it's a thing where yeah you can see the silver lining in it but but nah like it's it's better to have players than to not Okay, so let's talk about the big picture for Utah as they try to make the playoffs right now, even after they lost the game against Atlanta. Uh, we give them a 90% chance of making the playoffs. They're right there on that eight seed, but I think uh, we talked a few weeks ago about how their schedule is actually kind of shaping up favorably for them to, to at least get into the playoffs. Uh, but I'm curious about the fact that this is a team that doesn't really have a traditional superstar, uh, as we've mentioned, and it also has the least experience of of any team that's likely to make the postseason this year, even less uh, in terms of previous playoff minutes in in the uh, career of the roster than the Philadelphia 76ers, which I thought was kind of interesting. Uh, and, and one last note on that was that Rudy Gobert's career value over replacement player is the best on the team, but it's also the worst team-leading total for any team that's likely to make the playoffs so this is a team that also you know sort of has no experience and uh and and no kind of go-to big name superstar which we traditionally think of as being the the hallmarks of a team that can succeed uh so what do you guys think about their postseason potential to kind of make noise and and do anything if they get in and especially if they avoid maybe the 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 bottom two seeds so that they wouldn't have to face a, a houston or a golden state I mean, I, I I was thinking about this yesterday. At this point, is there any team that really is saying, we really want to play that team? Maybe, but I, I, I tweeted out a statistic that I found yesterday. Um, there have been eight teams this season in the NBA that have had a winning streak of 10 games or more at one point. Uh, it's the most that I've been able to find in recent history. I don't think, there, you know, recently there haven't ever been more than five or six. Um and, and so what that tells you, one thing that, you know, the competitive level of the NBA is a little thrown off, you know, if you've got all these teams bunched up, 
in the 20 to 25 win range. But also that you've got a lot of teams that on the flip side of that that are playing really good basketball, at least in stretches. And so based on that, I mean, maybe there are certain teams that, you know, at the top that say we've had a little bit more success against this team or we've swept this team. But just in a general sense, I wouldn't want to play Utah. I mean, it's it's just a team that feels like they're going to play celebrity deathmatch with you on defense. Um, it's a team that, you know, can slow the game down. And, and so, again, the, the playoff um, – pace isn't going to be something that throws them off they like playing late into the clock anyway they like taking other offenses deep into the clock um and it's a team that you know despite the playoff experience and what it might show you know a bunch of their frontline guys were in a playoff series last year and won one um you know and, and gobert might not rate out as well in terms of other teams top players one he's missed some time this year which might you know cut into some statistics but two, I mean, he's he's a, a defense-oriented guy that is also a good offensive player, but not in the most traditional sense. Does stuff that won't show up statistically in terms of the screens he's setting and how much it frees up for his guards. So, I mean, I, I wouldn't really want to play a team like that that's going to grind me down to a nub and maybe beat me up a decent amount before I go to the next round, if we can even beat them. Yeah, like you look at like Minnesota or or uh, Denver, or some of the other offenses they might have to face. Oklahoma City, uh, those offenses certainly uh, have had their troubles uh, during the season, based on injuries, based on just you know the Thunder for whatever reason not being able to click uh, despite all their stars. So yeah, I think that if you do have that great defense as the trump card, uh, it might make things interesting. And you know, it get, between Portland and Utah. These are teams that are sort of playing the, their best basketball at the right time, right on the cusp of the playoffs, and could be interesting matchups for the top two uh, in a potential second-round series. Okay, so let's keep an eye on the Jazz, but leave them there for now and close out the episode with a segment we like to call Significant Digits. It's that moment in the show when we bring you an interesting number from around the league that caught our eye, and this week's Sig Dig is 1-884. and According to ESPN Stats and Info, that is the record for NBA teams who trailed by five or more points in the final 20 seconds of a game. And the one in there, of course, is the Boston Celtics, who stunned the Oklahoma City Thunder on Tuesday night by overcoming a five-point deficit with 16.8 seconds to go. Kyle, I know you've been doing some digging on the Thunder. This is part of sort of a pattern for them, right, of, of collapsing or just not being able to close out games because of one very specific reason, right? They're 29th in the league in free throw percentage. Like this is <laughs> not like the a very, this is not a very hot. I mean, also you know freak shots and like whatever else and uh, you know Mark Smart's not being called for traveling. But but yes, uh, there you can't be 29th in the league in free throw percentage and uh, expect to win like a bunch of close games. Carmelo missed two at the end. I think Russ missed one right before that. And both of them are having bad down years for them from from the line. Russ, uh, notably, like uh, early on in the season, there was a thing where he's not allowed to to go walk around, do his walkabout, uh, which is part of his free throw routine, uh, the way he uh, he used to. And early in the season, he was shooting something like fifty percent. Uh, so he's he's recovered to something like seventy, seventy three, but he's traditionally in the eighties. Um, last season, Paul George was ninety uh, about. Uh, this season he's down at 80, which is still fine, and he's jumped around his career, so it's not as stark. Uh, Melo is in the mid 70s, um, he's typically not. Uh, so as a team, they're just not, uh, their best lineups aren't ones that have, you know, just really dead eye free throw shooters out there, um, the way that a lot of good teams are, and just 
not even just the, the lineups, like the, the team as a whole is just hemorrhaging points throughout the game, like by being so bad at this. And the funny thing is that you would think that the struggles with that would kind of uh, get relieved a little bit once Robertson's hurt and you're replacing him with literally anybody and you get better. But I mean, that was crazy to see. You know, I covered Mello for several years, um, even wrote a story at one point about how he took their technical foul shots all the time, despite the fact that he wasn't their best shooter. And Derek Fisher kind of joked with me. He's like, well, you know, points matter to some guys a lot more than other people. Um, <laughs> but Melo, you know, he didn't have a huge problem with it, even though Jose Calderon, I think, literally might hold the record for best free throw percentage in the season. Uh, Fisher basically told me that he didn't really mind and wasn't really bothered by it because Carmelo was still a good enough free throw shooter to where maybe you lose a point every season because of that. Maybe two. Uh, but yeah, when you miss two in a row there in a late game situation, I mean, the Thunder are, are probably safe. They're probably not going to miss the playoffs, but I mean, they've lost so many games at the end of, uh, end of regulation where they had a lead, you know, in the last 20, 30, 40 seconds of a game that, you know, if they were to finish as a seven or eight seed and then have one of those really horrible matchups that nobody wants. Um, all of a sudden, I mean, they wouldn't have anybody to blame but themselves, despite the fact that, you know, Robertson, that's a horrible injury, but, you know, they, they kind of put themselves in that spot to some extent. So one thing that, like, was popping up to me on this is Melo had only taken one free throw in the game before that, and which is, you know, rare for him. He's traditionally been a guy who, um, you know, he's no longer drawing you know, 8, 9, 10 a game, but he's not, you know, shooting one per game. And uh, so the research goes that um, at least within a, a series of foul shots, the first one is by far the, the least accurate. Um, it's in the mid-70s um, for the league as a whole. And uh, once you get into the second, it, it jumps five, six percentage points. You need a rhythm. Yeah, you get that practice rep. And this is like a selection bias with a third because, you know, not many people are getting fouled on three-pointers. But Except James Harden. Except James Harden. <laughs> uh, but as of uh, a few years back when this research was done, that jumped up to 88%. Uh, and so, yeah, like there, there's a rhythm to, to, you know, just doing your free throws and – Obviously, it is like within a set of free throws, but if you're just not shooting that many throughout the game, that impacts you. And if Melo is not getting as many as he used to, then that it's already like not a great free throw shooting team. But like if guys aren't as involved as there, which has been a problem all season, then that exasperates the thing also. Yeah. And of all the really kind of down numbers that Melo has put up this season, and it's actually shocking to look at his basketball reference page. He has a minus 3.8 box plus minus, which is actually well below replacement level this year. Uh, he is, has a 13 player efficiency rating. Uh, average on that number is, is 15 for the whole league. This is a guy who traditionally was made for the types of things that PER rewards like volume scoring uh, maybe the most shocking is that his free throw rate is only 17 free throw attempts for every 100 field goal attempts his average over his entire career is 36 so this is uh, just an incredibly aberrant number for him uh, and and maybe goes a little bit to what you're talking about Kyle with he just hasn't been drawing the same number of free throws and so he uh, that might be playing into his percentage also because he just never has the rhythm from there and and I think it's kind of a chicken and egg question with that too, where on the one hand you want him drawing free throws, on the other you don't want him doing the things that help him draw free throws. You need him to be more of a catch and shoot guy with this team. I mean, we we saw him try to uh, domineer his way through this offense and kind of 
forced these isos and kind of forced the issue to get to the basket. In one case, we actually saw him get ejected trying to get to the basket where you know he elbowed Yusuf Nurkic in the really controversial call there in a game against Portland much earlier in the season. But honestly, I mean, I probably am willing to take a much, much, much lower free throw rate if it means that I can kind of just use him as a catch-and-shoot guy. Even though his numbers are down in that regard, um, it, it just wasn't working for that offense. And, I mean, the only thing keeping them afloat at that point in the season where all three of them were playing this I've-got-to-get-mine sort of style, you know, their defense was the only thing keeping them in, in games and winning them games at that point because their offense was horrendous. And so I think they probably fare better with him despite the fact that he's getting to the line uh, a lot, a lot less. But it's kind of sad if if that's sort of your best use of Carmelo Anthony's for him to just be this kind of spot-up shooter, a guy who's made only 35% of his threes overall, actually. So if that's the role that you've kind of carved out for him and, and you can't trust him to be effective in a different type of role... What there are other players that can kind of perform that role better uh, and and don't have some of the other kind of baggage that he has. So it does seem like that's one of the big reasons why this Carmelo experiment in Oklahoma City has been basically a failure, I think. Uh, I mean, the playoffs will be sort of the ultimate referendum on that. But as it stands right now, it, it has kind of been more of a, of a disaster than not. I mean, I think Kyle and I have talked about some things. I mean, he, he still is a useful pick-and-roll player, still – even if his numbers are, are sagging this year, and it's probably a trend that's going to continue based on his age and other factors. Um, I mean, he still draws a lot of attention and respect from other players uh, and people that defend him. And so if him and Russ run a pick and roll, Carmelo's setting a screen for him, uh, you have to pay attention to him still, or at least that's the perception is that you still have to pay attention to him. Uh, you know, but, I, I, but yeah, I mean, there's a reason that, you know, you don't hear people asking the question. People are asking, you know, what does Paul George do at the end of the season? Not a damn person is asking that question about Carmelo, despite the fact that he has an opt-out this year, and it's because he's due to make $28 million. Nobody's going to give him that on the open market. So, I mean, it's it's a foregone conclusion that no matter what happens, that Carmelo is in Oklahoma City and likely no one will trade for him. He's there for the long haul because he is not what he used to be. Okay, so let's leave things there with a thunder, and that'll do it for this week's show. Our podcast producers are Tony Chow and Katie Ferguson. Our podcast commissioner is Chad Matlin. You can send us your questions and comments at podcasts at 538.com. Whatever your favorite podcasting app is, we're there, whether it's the Listen tab on the ESPN app or on Apple Podcasts, where you can subscribe at iTunes.com slash 538. Wherever you find us, be sure to review and rate the show. It helps others discover the program. For Kyle and Chris, I'm Neil. Thanks for listening, and talk to you next time.